I think a lot of you are tired of having your leaders dodge the hard issues. I think you're hungry for some meat you can get your teeth into and chew on. Hope this is true because our present series on Truth Encounter has bitten off a heavy responsibility to try and communicate the basics of Deuteronomy. Hardly soundbite and photo clip material. The founder of Israel expected his people to learn from their history and to refrain from making the same mistakes that their parents made. As our study reader Dave Wurtson continues our study of Moses' review of Israel's history in chapters 2 and 3, he challenges us to grow up and stretch our own understanding, to make our minds pay attention. Let's see if we're up to it. As you grow in life, there's going to come some times when you're just going to have to listen harder and open your heart wider and make your mind pay attention. And all I want you to understand that because we are losing that. We're losing that among an entire generation of people that can struggle with material. And so part of my faith is to believe you know, contrary to what, what is really the case in the modern world, where you're said, you know, you're into sound bites and into visual bites. In fact, if we really wanted to do this, we should just put up radical, just a whole series of different videos and, and just let your mind look at the videos. You'll never understand Deuteronomy doing that. It's hard. It's Moses telling them the account of their history, a history that we need to know about. There was a generation that didn't believe. Oh, I pray you're not going to be that generation. And I don't think we are. I think there's a generation coming up that's going to be a generation of belief. It's going to be a generation of faith. It's going to be a generation of obedience. The neat thing about God's plan is we don't have to kill off the former generation. Isn't that great? That's something that really encouraged me. You know what's really neat? In God's family, you don't have to have the older generation walk away so the younger generation can rule. Because He rules. And it means that the older generation, looking to Him, can run right into eternity strong for Him. They don't have to be threatened by the physical strength and the excitement and the power of the young because they realize, man, I'm going to run into eternity and in probably a shorter time than you, I'll be much stronger than you. So as I become weaker physically and don't have quite the energy, I'm not threatened. I'm on my way home. But I also want to share with you all the wisdom of walking with God these many years. And so the younger generation comes alongside the older generation and together they combine intimacy with God and strength. And boy, what can God do with that kind of a combination? That's what I learned from this passage. In the children of Israel's history, there was a generation that said no. Praise God, we don't have that generation. Someday we could have that generation. It's also a great challenge because I believe that we're going to come to our Kadesh Barneas as individuals, as a church family, as a body of Christ in the United States and throughout the world. And the choices we make are significant. The second thing we get into in this passage is God starts to really talk to his people about this, this area to the north where he wants them to conquer. And what the Lord tells them is, 
that there's a king that's ruling over here, right here in Heshbon, which Mary and I have been to. It's even in its, in its, in its archaeological, you know, just a, a tell, just a hill with all kinds of ruins. It's still very moving. And there were beautiful pools of water, beautiful recreation lakes, like and just small ponds that made this area beautiful. The king of that city was named Sion. And our text tells us that Sion hardened his heart against the Lord. In fact, it tells us in the text that the Lord hardened his heart. If you look down here at the verse 24, it says, Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge, which is like a miniature Grand Canyon. See, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite king of Heshbon in his country. This is verse 24 of chapter 2. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will put him to terror and fear. I will put the terror and fear of all of you on the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and will be in anguish because of you. From the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messages to Zion, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. Please sell us food and eat and, and so that we can eat and water to drink. For their price in silver, only let us pass through on foot. This is the same deal they promised the Edomites and the Moabites. They said, we'll go in peacefully. But look what happens. It tells us in verse 30, But Sion, the king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn, and his heart was obstinate. Now notice it's this, In order to give him into your hands, as he has now done. Sion is this generation's Pharaoh. And I want you to understand something. Down in Egypt, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And when you study the book of Exodus, you have to wrestle with it. How can God harden Pharaoh's heart and hold him responsible? Hold him responsible? Now, I want you to stick with me. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God will tell you that there's a king. There's an individual. And God will tell, tell them, that, will tell you that they are prideful, they are committed to rebellion against him. And then it will tell you that the Lord is the one that's hardening them. Now, it's not telling us because in the Old Testament it says that God doesn't... And James tells us this as well, picking up on some Old Testament thought. God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. In him is no darkness at all. God cannot be tempted and he doesn't tempt any man. So the Bible's not telling us that the Lord God in heaven is playing some kind of a, a fatalistic game and He makes people do evil things. What it says is this. Human beings are agents that are made in the image of God that can choose to respond to Him, can choose to reject Him. When they choose to reject Him, however, it doesn't catch the God of the universe by surprise. In fact, He incorporates it in an eternal story that he wrote before the beginning of time. There's a part of you that's not going to like that because you know what I just told you? Whatever you do, no matter what you might decide in your life, you're not going to get away from God. You're not going to be able to make a decision that surprises Him. You're not going to be able to go someplace that you get away from Him. Jonah thought he could get away from God, and where did he end up? At the bottom of the ocean. If there's any place you could get away from God, it's in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the ocean. Did he get away from God? No. He was in the belly of, fish, of the fish because of his disobedience, and God knew exactly where he was. You can't get away from God. 
You say, well, Dave, what's the big deal about that? That's one of the biggest problems we have. And one of the major differences between a man of faith and a man of rebellion and wickedness is the man of faith says, okay, God, I don't understand, but I'll respond to you. I'll let you be God. And I'll try to make choices that will believe in you. The wicked man says, no, I think you're mean. I think you're vindictive. I think you're arbitrary. You, you know, the children of Israel, they're your promised people. I'm not your promised people. I'm going to get you. I'm going to fight you. Science obstinate. And he rebels against God. And the amazing thing about this path is the Lord says, it's all part of my plan. Science hardness of heart, his stubbornness, is going to cause him to attack my people. And my people will overwhelm them in victory. And I will give my people this beautiful land that used to belong to science. I want you to understand that it's not arbitrary. If I was down at UT again, someone would raise their hand and say, well, that's really mean. The Lord wipes out the, you know, Zion and he gives it to the children of Israel. So the Lord shows favorites, doesn't he? Sure, and then he has his nice little good, you kind of like the teacher's pet. And that's not fair. I want you to answer a question. As the children of Israel took this land, this good land, what did the prophets tell them? If you obey me, you will what? You will dwell on the land. If you disobey me, what will happen? You think God isn't fair? Do you realize that the children of Israel for hundreds upon hundreds of years have not been able to live in this land? Until 1948, they could not live in this land freely. And they're still under tremendous threat. you know why? Because God is fair. The wages of sin is death. Sion hardened his heart, stubbornly refused to obey the Lord. He was wiped out. The children of Israel hardened their heart, stubbornly refused to obey him, presumptuously presumed upon his choice. And God took the land away from them. You know what the Bible is telling us? Many times we don't understand but he's saying there is such a thing as wickedness. And I want you to get this. I want us to understand it as Americans. We need to pray that our nation will understand it. There's something else that's going on here. Sion is a wicked man. I'm going to say that again. Sion is a wicked man. You say, how do you know that? Because he hardened his heart in vehement rebellion against the Lord God of heaven. The Lord God of heaven said, let my people pass through. Feed them. Just give them food. They'll even pay for it. He said, no! That's wickedness. And I want to share something with you. Wickedness is so bad that if you don't cut it out, it will destroy. It's like a malignancy. Let me use a modern example. I want you to think of someone that shoots missiles at Dallas, just randomly. They could land anywhere they want to land in Dallas. What would you think about someone that did that? If someone, if an individual just got up like happened at UT years ago, gets up in a tower and starts randomly shooting people, what needs to be done? Chamberlain, the prime minister of Egypt, went before World War II happened, did not believe in evil. He was liberal in his thinking. He didn't think that there was such a thing as evil. He didn't think that evil was a reality. He thought that if we all think positively, if we all just hope for the best, if we just will think lovely thoughts like Peter Pan, we're going to fly. 
He sat across the table from Hitler. And Hitler said, I promise you, I will not invade Poland. I do not desire all of Europe. I am a good boy. I have memorized my Sunday school verses and I want to live together in peace with the nation of England and with all the nations of the world. And guess what Chamberlain said? That's wonderful. He came back and told all the English people, it's wonderful. Hitler is a good person. What happened? He was totally duped. You know why? There is such a thing as evil. There's such a thing as evil right in this room. Right in my heart. The modern world doesn't want to believe that. But Saddam Hussein can dwell right inside of here. And God doesn't monkey with it. He doesn't play with it. The modern world hates these texts. And you'll never understand why God does what He does until you're on the edge of a dug grave that you dug yourself. And a wicked person is going to mow you into eternity. And someone comes to your rescue, then you'll understand that sometimes there does need to be a strong execution of judgment. I want to share something with you. We need to be very much in prayer. Because if our nation forgets that, then the criminal science of today's world and don't think we're going to usher in a, in a kingdom of peace on earth, goodwill towards men, until the Messiah comes back. So if we become totally weak and totally vulnerable and don't understand, I want to apply this not just nationally, but in the courtroom. Those of you that are in law, those of you that get involved in law need to understand the courtroom is a place for justice. And I'm not asking any of you to agree with me, but I'm asking you to think. And I'm asking you to think about a reality of wickedness. And these Old Testament passages are not about an arbitrary God in ancient times who primitively and viciously just destroyed people. We're dealing with a king in heaven that says, I am the king. You commit treason against me if you break all my rules and regulations, then you will lose because I will judge. I'll judge individuals. I will judge nations. And I will judge internationally. Eventually, the book of Revelation culminates in a great holy war with Jesus leading the attack. And it's totally just, totally fair. And there's no room for individual pride. Remember what I said. God's not choosing favorites. The wages of sin is death. The wages of stubbornly rebelling against Him is death in any generation. This happens to the king of Ammon. It happens to Og, who was the king of this area here to the north, king of Bashan. Both of those kings lost their lives and lost their land because they refused to obey the Lord. But I want to close today by telling you about another incredible loss. The very end of Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses prays to the Lord. And I want you to look at his prayer. Moses gives it one last shot. You kids ever go to your parents and say, I'm going to try it one more time. Mom and Dad, can I go? And this is what Moses does. 
It says in verse 21 of chapter 3, uh, verse 23, we'll begin, At that time I pleaded with the Lord, and here's the way he prayed. Great, great, and heartfelt prayer. O sovereign Lord, recognizing you have the right to destroy Og, you have the right to destroy Sion. O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. Boy, does he know psychology. Goes to his daddy in heaven and says, Boy, we've begun to have great victory here. Boy, we've won some initial battles. I've begun to see, and it's all because of your greatness. For what God is there on heaven and earth who can do such mighty deeds and mighty works? Boy, Moses knows how to get in, doesn't he? You need to learn to pray like this. You want to learn how to, how to pray? Look at how Moses prays. Let me go over. Now we come to the request. So kids, if you want something from your dad, what you do is you say, Dad, boy, I remember the last time we did something together. Man, I'd begun to see your prowess and the way that you took care of the car. And man, I, I just can't believe the insight you had and the way that we changed the oil. What dad on all the earth is like you? Can I have a new pickup truck? You need to learn it. That's what Moses is doing here. Let me go over. Now we come to his request. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country of Lebanon. But because of you, boy, that's a tough one. Because of you, the people, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Don't speak to me anymore about this matter. Go up to the top of Mount Pisgah, which is right here in the land of Moab, and it overlooks this whole area. Mount Nebo is another name for that. And it, and it looked to the west and to the north and to the south and the east. Look at the land with your, own eye, with your own eyes since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he will lead this people across and will cause him to inherit that good land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. The Lord said no. If I were Moses at that particular point in my life as we close, I would have said, I've had it. Anybody ever feel like that? I mean, all my life, I started out in Egypt. I did all those crazy things. I threw my rod on the ground and it turned to a snake. I put up with this obstinate people all of my life. Man, everything from they griped about the manna, they griped about food, they disobeyed when the Lord gave them quail, they ate it wrongly and ate it with the blood in their mouth. I mean, just one crazy rebellious thing after another. Finally, at the second time they came to Kadesh Barnea, finally I got to Moses. The Lord says, Moses, I want you just to step back of this rock and just talk to the rock, speak to the rock, and there will be water. Instead, Moses struck the rock with a rod. In fact, he probably struck it several times. He does what I do, kind of do when I get mad. And all that pent-up frustration of agonizing with his people finally got to him. And Moses broke and he just smote the living daylight to that rock. And boy, it produced water all right. And the Lord God in heaven just quietly said, that's it. You can't go into the land. The book of Numbers tells that the Lord said, I will not share my glory with another. I want you to understand something. You see, God was writing a great story. The rock represents the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. He is the rock of our salvation. We even sing that in a chorus. Jesus is the rock of my salvation. And He's the living water. He told the woman of Samaria, out of her innermost being could flow rivers of living water. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Jesus is the rock that accompanied 
the people in the wilderness. I want to share something with you. You don't beat Christ to get him to respond to you. You don't hit him. You don't do any work. You don't do any force. You know what you have to do? You just have to talk to him. That's what I started out with. You just need to speak to him. Honestly, from deep in your soul, you need to say, Lord Jesus, give me the living water. Some of you have been raised in backgrounds where you've got to do this, you've got to do this. God had really good reasons for telling Moses, don't hit that rock, just talk to it. And Moses disobeyed. And he took some of the glory upon himself. And the Lord says, okay, you can't go into the land. I want to tell you something else. The Lord at the end of Moses' life took him up into that high mountain and he showed him the land in a way that's an impossibility. Mary and I have been on top of Mount Nebo, Mount Pisgah here, and you can't see what Moses saw. We try. So I can tell you personally, I try. You can't see as far north as they say. You can't see the dimensions that he saw. You know what God did? He said, I told you you couldn't go into the land. But I'm going to give you a vision of that promised land that you could have never gotten any other way. You know what else the book of Hebrews tells us? That Moses went to another land that's far more important. It's the land of heaven. You see, when I was a little kid, it used to make me really angry with God because the Lord wouldn't let Moses go into the promised land. And I was tempted as a little kid to say, God is mean. Boy, he demanded. He's like one of those stupid teachers that says, I'm sorry, you flunked, you flunked. Who likes that? I like the teacher that says, no, we're going to grade it on the curve. And I remember, I, I, I get really angry with God. And as I've grown older in the Lord, you see, I could have got angry with God and I could have walked away from Him. Some of you are going to face a lot bigger things in your life that will tempt you to walk away from God. Much bigger than whether or not God let Moses go into the promised land. I want to share something with you. The Lord didn't take the promised land away from Moses. He took him to the Mount of Mount Pisgah and He took him home to glory. And then Moses was in the real promised land. I think one of Moses' problems is as he grew older, he forgot what the promised land really was. The promised land is intimacy with God. It's not a piece of real estate. The promised land is drinking of heavenly water, not the streams of Jordan. By the way, Jordan's muddy almost all of its thing. It's coarse. The Lord wasn't mean. And also in the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Messiah came and let the kingdom be shown for just a little bit, it says that two people appeared and talked things over with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And guess where that was? In the promised land. Like Moses, you're going to go through some time in your life when you ask God in your prayer life and you do it all right. You call God the sovereign Lord. You talk about His greatness. You talk about His goodness. You talk about the beginnings of, beginnings of His blessings and God will still say no. And you'll be tempted to walk away. And some of you will. My message to you, I plead with you, please don't walk away. Because God is God. And God is good. And when all the story is written, you'll find out that He's not just just. He's not just fair. He is forgiving and gracious and merciful. Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we dusted off full of ancient names. 
It tells us an important message about justice, that there is wickedness and it needs to be violently cut out. It tells us that God is not just moving through the affairs of men arbitrarily. The ebb and flow of people moving in and out of lands is somehow related to a moral scheme of redemption and salvation. And we close with an incredible challenge. Give all the glory to Him. Just speak to the rock. Because in Deuteronomy, it says not the message of numbers, but in Deuteronomy, Moses says, I couldn't go into the land because of you. I took the punishment. I identified with you as a rebellious people. And so our final message from Deuteronomy chapter 3 is there is a new Moses who, unlike the first Moses, never struck the rock, never disobeyed his father. The only person that could have walked into the promised land all by himself and said, I'm the only one that deserves to be here. But you know what? On the cross of Calvary, Jesus chose to stand outside the promised land. In fact, he chose far more than that. He chose to take your punishment for sin and death. You know why? Because he identified with you like Moses identified with the children of Israel. He became one of us. It says, he who knew no sin became the sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so Moses reminds us in a very powerful way in these chapters of Deuteronomy of a great leader who chooses to identify with the sin of his people. And he points us to the ultimate Moses, the ultimate deliverer, who chose to identify with our sin, take it upon himself, so we could walk into the promised land forever and ever.